Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Micro, a podcast for short but powerful writing. I'm your host, Drew Hawkins. This episode features small pieces that deal in large, heavy concepts. Each involves, in some sense, a loss of innocence and coming to terms with our own mortality. This first story is called Two Boys Downtown at Play. It was written by J. Edward Cruft and published by X-Ray Literary Magazine on July 19th, 2020. Enjoy. They were to meet at the Benbridge clock, as usual. Aaron arrived first, in his Spandau Ballet t-shirt and Levi's ripped at both knees. Last year's ski jacket, unzipped as it was a warm day. He stood smoking his camel as a murder of boys came by. Fag, one of them called, and they all laughed and looked over their shoulders and pointed and laughed again, and Aaron, he blew smoke from his nose. He watched Matt approach from Fourth Avenue, Matt with his shoulder-length hair in his Smith's t-shirt and paint-splattered cords and green Spiwak parka that was torn at the elbow where cotton batting stuck out. Perfect, thought Aaron tossing the camel butt to the curb. Matt socked Aaron in the arm. Look, he said, pulling his own pack of camels from his pocket. He opened the box, and Aaron smiled at what he saw, the last cigarette in the pack turned upside down. Matt took it out and lit it, inhaled deeply, held like it was pot, and then let out in a fluid stream. Oh, that's good. That's really good. I wanted to smoke all morning, but when I saw this was the only one left... He passed the cigarette to Aaron, who took his own drag as they began to walk, exchanging the cigarette after each hit. Matt took the last of it, down to the filter, right in front of the main entrance to Nordstrom. There's our luck, Matt grinned, flicking the butt to the curb. Inside, they stopped and glanced right, glanced left, and then to each other with a look that was like a wink, and then headed to the up escalator. In the men's department... Aaron went for the dress shirt section, while Matt went for polos. They were pros. They knew to give time to get noticed, to appear on the radar, picking up items, looking guiltily over their shoulders. It didn't take long. They arrived at the dressing rooms at the same time. Only one was available, so they went in together, which was better anyway, thought Aaron. 
Aaron hung his shirts on the hook, and as he did, he accidentally brushed Matt's arm. And then he brushed it again, not by accident. Matt placed his shirts on the bench, and then in a motion as fluid as that morning's smoke, he shifted around and took Aaron's head in his hands and kissed him hard, warm, tobacco-y, wet. Pulling back, each grinned. First Aaron, then Matt. That's another thing I wanted to do all morning. They zipped their coats up to their chins. Matt put up his hood. They walked with intent, quick but not too quick, down the down escalator, through cosmetics, and out onto Pine Street. The man who nabbed them was meaty and sweating in an ill-fitted suit. He put a hand on each of their shoulders, and they spun around to face him. Nice try, boys. You should know, that's the oldest one in the book. All right, off with them. Sir? asked Matt. The guard clucked his tongue. Passers-by began stopping. The murderer boys jaywalked to see what was up. You must think I'm a real fucking idiot, huh? Just some flunky security guard? That what you think, you little shits? But, sir, take off your fucking coats before I rip them off your scrawny little bodies. Matt and Aaron looked at each other, earnest as hell, and then slowly lifted their hands to their necks, took hold of the zipper pull, and pulled slowly down. Spandau Ballet, The Smiths. The guard's face turned rosy, and then as he chewed for his words, he became crimson. Aaron was certain he would have struck them if not for the crowd. Finally, his arm shot up, and a trembling finger pointed to no place particular. Go! Get the fuck out of my face. Now! The boys turned and started walking away. They were all smiles. And I never want to see you in here again. I will have you immediately arrested for trespassing. Immediately. Spoiled little Bellevue fucks. Matt turned and shouted back, Mercer Island! The guard lurched as if to pursue, and Aaron and Matt broke into a run, all the way to Ibe Magnon where the dressing rooms were larger and more luxurious, and where, Aaron hoped, he might get more than just a kiss. J. Edward Krupp is a fiction writer and an editor-at-large at Trampset who is no longer banned from Nordstrom. You can find him on Twitter at J. Edward Krupp or on his website at jedwardcruft.com. This next piece moves us along on our journey with a tragic tale titled Childhood's End. It was written by Allison Tate and published by Macro Mike on December 9th, 2020. Enjoy. Childhood's End. John, James, Mary, and Martha were inseparable, tied together since birth. They'd lived on the same cul-de-sac, gone to the same elementary school, and grew up being called each other's names. Every day during summer vacation, they marched out the back gate of Mary's house, crossed an empty swath of grass, and shimmied onto a forest path that only the kids explored. Branches and leaves hid the foot-worn dirt, while thick vines crisscrossed between the trunks. But just beyond the shadows, it was there. 
The day before seventh grade, they stepped onto the path at dawn. The air between the trees was charged, raising goosebumps on their skin. Each ray of sunshine became a spotlight, highlighting a strange moment in time for the quartet. Every breath and memory of the day, everything would change. Sometime that afternoon, they veered off their special path. None of them mentioned it, and John wasn't sure the others even noticed. Eventually, they came upon an old wall they didn't recognize. James found the ladder, coated in years of forest air and moisture. The girls coughed as his movements unsettled dust and spiderwebs. John's lips sucked together as he watched the other boy climb over the slick stones of the well. One last adventure, James said, before climbing down the rungs. The ladder didn't look safe, but James didn't slow down. Before long, he had disappeared, alone on a brand new hidden path, a secret within a secret. His footsteps echoed before softening into a whisper. There was a grunt, and after a moment came a thump. The well went silent. Mary and Martha screamed. None of the friends talked after that day happy to settle at uncomfortable eye contact throughout high school. Years later, long after the girls had moved out of state, John often thought of that summer, of James and Mary and Martha. He remembered how they'd been inseparable. He daydreamed of the cul-de-sac, the old elementary school, and getting called each other's names. Except no one called him James anymore, not since that day before seventh grade. Allison Tate lives with her husband, daughter, and Corgi, and somehow manages to still get writing done. You can find her on Twitter at RudixVirus1. This last one completes our journey with a very real reckoning with mortality in the modern era. It's called Facing Death in a Pandemic. As its title suggests, this is a nonfiction piece about a medical student's experience working on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. It was written by Sophia Yopolitor and published by the Annals of Internal Medicine, Volume 173, Issue 5, which was published on September 1, 2020. I'd also like to provide a content warning here. This piece does involve traumatic death and death from COVID-19, so please do use your discretion. Enjoy. My personal death anxiety began at age five when I learned that the sun would burn out in five billion years. I developed elaborate plans to discover another solar system. As I matured, so did my anxiety. My parents would die. Everyone on the subway would die. Later, I lost friends to suicide and my grandfather to cancer. I had to contend with a brain mass, which thankfully proved to be benign. The first patient death I witnessed was in the trauma bay on a cold night in 2019. I entered for an overnight shift just as a man arrived who had been shot in the chest. Before I could even get a mask on, a resident was massaging his heart. After 40 minutes, 
the attending called time of death and handed me a needle driver, gesturing for me to close the man's splayed-open ribcage. With the team focused on central line placement in the next bay, I approximated his chest, willing every stitch to provide closure for not only the wound, but also his family, to shield them from the gore of our attempts to save him. There were more deaths that year. A teenager dead on arrival whose mother sent a grinning photo for identification. A late-term, unexpected pregnancy loss. A patient with end-stage COPD who wanted to die at home but was too sick for transfer. Finally, an unidentified woman found in cardiac arrest, whose return to spontaneous circulation came under the weight of my frantic, inexperienced chest compressions. Her condition deteriorated 30 minutes later. This time, despite repeated efforts, her pulse could not be maintained. I would like everyone to take a moment of silence, the attending said, to respect and honor the life this woman has lived. We do not know who she is or who her loved ones are. We are her family right now. Later, I thanked the attending. She knitted her brow, looking slightly perplexed. I explained that it was my first code and that it had been meaningful to see compassion in the face of such stress. Ah, well, that's just how I do things, she said, her expression softening. So often in the emergency department, our patients are alone in their deaths and we're all that they have. I pursued a career in medicine knowing I would have to face my longtime adversary and somehow broker peace between us. Throughout my training, I have perseverated over what it means to have a good death. Every day since early March, I have stumbled over the paradox of whether one can die a good death in a pandemic. When my medical school sent out a list of volunteer opportunities for students to assist with COVID-19 efforts, one in particular stood out to me. Critical care physicians, with the assistance of two medical students, had put together a virtual visitation effort for hospitalized patients and their families. Given the limitations on hospital visitation, the program's stated aim was to enhance connection among the family, care team, and patient by providing remote emotional and communication support. I grabbed at the chance. To date, I have spoken with more than a dozen families. I have cried with a woman whose brother was intubated in the ICU with COVID-19, afraid she would have to comfort him over the phone. The patient's nurse brought a telephone to his room and conferenced the family in. His niece sang him a Get Well song. Your team has been so communicative, the husband of another patient said to me on our third call. In a different time, his wife would have had multiple visitors a day. He continued, It's been hard not to be able to visit her. I feel like I know you all, though. The care has felt so personal. The sentiment of each family has been the same. Despite the distance, they have been made to feel as if they are present. Each afternoon, scanning my patients' charts for updates, I see new advanced care planning notes, pastoral care interventions, and social work outreach. Earlier this week, there was a long note from a resident detailing an early morning comfort care conversation she had with a patient's daughter. They spoke about the family's faith and how it informed the guiding principles of the patient's life, as well as how to best make a decision consistent with the patient's values. 
The team FaceTimed the patient's daughter on one of their personal devices. She spoke to her mother and said goodbye. Her pastor was conferenced in to administer last rites. The patient quietly passed shortly after. To ask what it means to die and what it means to die well is fundamentally a human question. As a child, I thought I was alone in this thinking. So many years ago, I was unable to apprehend these ever-present thoughts of mortality. It has been my medical education that has brought clarity to my own enduring anxiety. The role of the physician has always been one of guidance. Death, much like birth, requires careful shepherding. Our bodies have intrinsic ability for both, but benefit from gentle facilitation. In this new era of distancing, medicine has been faced with the challenge of how to provide the solace, grace, and dignity that our patients both need and deserve. To be sure, this is a challenge that will continue as we move forward into an uncertain future. With this awareness has come a surprising peace. I will not avoid death, but neither will I be its passive bystander. Sophia Yopalader is a fourth-year medical student and writer based in Philadelphia. You can find her on Instagram at LoxLoxBagel or on Twitter at S. Yopalader. Micro is produced and hosted by me, Drew Hawkins. Original music is by Matt Ordez. You can find all of the information about this episode's writers, their featured work, and the publications where they were published in the show notes. Subscribe to the show and check out some of our other episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can always find our shows at micropodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Podcast Micro. Thanks for listening.